The title of this evening's talk <clears throat> is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of Not-Self. And the looking glass is a reflecting mirror that one can uh, step into as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years, uh, during my childhood, and <coughs> and then um, on through adolescence and into uh, the teen years, I had a recurring dream many, many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, <coughs> looking at the mirror. Uh, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, and back and back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. And I was kind of amazed by it, I was fascinated by it, I was quite intrigued by it at times. And if I thought about it very much, I got quite perplexed. But mostly I was really just interested. In fact, interested enough that it's really the only dream that I uh, clearly remember experiencing from my early years. And this dream eventually wove itself into really the very fabric of my life. Beginning at when, at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because um, of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then I had the distinct feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, really became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. This evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality reality that for many people uh, seems the most difficult to touch. The most difficult to touch and to know and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be quite fraught with a subtle or more overt fear. In its essence, this truth is really so basic and so simple and that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, of belief, 
that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most all of us humans live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, it, you. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or in the context of the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs to relinquish the attachment, basically, to all of our clung-to and cherished self-identities. It's important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw our self out. We're not asked to throw our self away. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self, because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Really not even for one moment. What we call our self on one level is a subtle and yet clearly discernible active phenomena or process that we can sense, feel, see, and know directly through our practice. One aspect of this that's very readily available to know experientially is the body as a process made up of many elements. And we talked uh, a little bit about this and had a guided sit earlier in the retreat regarding this. The earth element with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness and lightness. The water element with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. And the fire element with its characteristics of heat and coldness. And the air element or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements being in constant flux and of them in and of themselves and also in relationship with each other. Our so-called self as our body or my body is actually a process in constant flux, an elemental process in constant flux. 
The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So in truth, there's really nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. And as we come to know this to whatever degree, and we do little by little come to know it, essentially it's all of the Buddha's teachings and all of the Buddhist practices that lead to this. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourselves and look with such sincerity and humility and willingness that we begin to see ourselves more accurately. We begin to see through ourselves by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached. Without all the layers of meaning we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple. Maybe not so easy, but really very simple. We're sitting here in retreat or at work, at our desk, or at home on the couch. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these occurrences are merely, are just themselves. And as the Thai meditation master Ajahn Chah said, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no real, no true sustaining happiness in the realm of conditional existence. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. And a quote uh, by a Chinese sage, Nan Xin, that I, I offered uh, during the talk on Anicca, or impermanence. Never hurts to hear this one again. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality.
we experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only just so much? Can we look into the mirror of our self without claiming ownership and without investing an interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see? So, for instance, we think of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house, my, 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 oh my. (laughs) We think that way a lot. This is really uh, some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become, how we know self. The Buddha had a very amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. He said, it's in the understanding that they are not self, is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma. Looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there's a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. The tangle will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention? It's really only then that the observer, the so-called self and what's being observed, what's being investigated are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling. Merely heat. Merely an ache in the chest or a tingling through the body. Merely, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's often spoke of, not two. Just this present moment being known, just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts and 
bodily sensations and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes, can the power of deeply rooted egocentric thoughts, habits, and self-centered inclinations be loosened and reduced, relinquished, and at some point finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, that we come to know not-self, or no-self as it's sometimes expressed. And then for just a moment or two, and eventually longer, and maybe at some point finally, it's not always all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing. No thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind, is free. And from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load. It's a a burden to carry our self around. This body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all of the hopes and fears, We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around all the things of life in the form of thoughts and feelings and various opinions and perceptions and beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership and a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you. It hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. And we keep looking and seeing and living life. And in fact, living life much more freshly and much more fully in the immediacy of here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. 
ordinary life becomes our teacher in our life here on retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting. The Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield speaks of this in her very unique and uh, beautiful way. She calls this poem, Only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off. If I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant, as if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours. That all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other. That even this body is merely merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So for instance, do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensation therein? Am I in the thigh bone? Am I in the shoulder bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils, is that me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot as it moves through space, or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend. Well, we might think, okay, I'm not the foot, I'm not my shoulder, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind. Certainly my conscious mind, that's me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? I think it's fair to say that 
one of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is that we think we think of our mind, our conscious mind, as ourself. But the truth is that the very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, unborn. So take a moment, right this moment, and just look into your mind, your heart, just for a moment. Maybe for a moment you sense and see its empty nature, like experiencing zero, as one of my Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. And so the Buddha, coming directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary way of thinking, thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomenon. It too arises and passes away, moment by moment just like every other conditioned phenomena. And this can actually be experienced directly through practice. It too is this conscious mind. Consciousness is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors, no matter how gross or how subtle that object may be. It too is dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact with any object at any sense door. It too is dependent on the mental labels and constructs and clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness, which I think I did mention maybe briefly in another talk, I'm not sure, but the six doors of consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind, mind phenomena consciousness. In two uh, short uh, little dialogues, suttas from the Buddha, in relationship to this exploration, a deva came to the Buddha and asked, What produces a person? And the deva goes on with more questions. What does he or she have that runs around? What enters upon samsara? What is his or her greatest fear? 
from what is uh, from what is she or he not yet freed what determines his or her destiny and the buddha responds to the deva craving is what produces a person his or her mind is what runs around a being enters upon samsara suffering is his or her greatest fear she or he is not freed from suffering kama or karma determines his or her destiny and then another uh, brief conversation that the buddha had with ananda who was the buddha's chief uh, disciple And in case you're interested, these are both from the Samyutta Nikaya. Venerable Ananda asks, asks the Buddha, <coughs> Venerable Sir, it said, empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said, empty is the world? And the Buddha responds to Ananda by saying, It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self, the Buddha says? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact, and he goes through each of the sense store consciousnesses in this way, ending with mind consciousness. And whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither ple- painful nor pleasant, that too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. And uh, from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage, another Dhamma mirror. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. And a wonderfully a simple poem by contemporary uh, Buddhist poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make my mind up about nothing. To assume the water mask. To finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy. 
joining at night the full, sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move towards the uh, last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer uh, two uh, brief guided meditations. Beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, don't struggle at all with this. Just simply allow a felt sense to permeate your mind and heart in relationship and body, in relationship to the following descriptive words. So we'll begin with the eyes closed, closing your eyes gently. and visualizing in some way or sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, letting it fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, this felt sense, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. 
And now let the image, let the felt sense go. Let it dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self. This is really the ground of understanding not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, I'm sure that many of you find that more and more often you act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there's only relationship. There's only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you, and no separated, separate, no isolated, independent me. And now the second guided meditation, brief guided meditation. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. and relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to Picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. <coughs> the clouds are moving and changing shape and dissolving, and new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, the heart, rest in the openness of the sky, 
let the mind, the heart rest in the vast openness. Not fixating on any cloud, just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. Now let the image and the felt sense fade away. And just sit for a moment letting the heart, the mind, open wide, allowing awareness to be very spacious, not fixing any edges to it. Who's aware? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing. Just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. 
we look in, we keep looking. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. And we see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. And we begin to understand that we can't depend on anything in this world or in our own body-mind continuum in the world ar- or in the world around us, the world of our own body-mind continuum or in the world around us, to render us really fully and truly happy and at ease. And so we continue to just simply and humbly look into the mirror at ourselves, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becoming clearer and more open, more all-encompassing, more spacious. And instead of finding some solid, static, separate something or some solid rendition of I or me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. And in this there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential emptiness there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease. Even in the midst of the arising and changing and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we very fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, the greatest problems, the greatest suffering that we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, solid, static, separate entity. This is really the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I'd like to uh, share uh, a little story with you, (coughs) a true story uh, about a friend of mine who was suffering with this core loneliness and uh, (coughs) decided to seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at, uh, at the age of about 40. So with the advice of some friends, he picked 
a therapist that had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called uh, to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be very helpful if he brought some symbol of his problems, some, some symbol of his concern with him for his first therapy session. Well, he arrived at the uh, therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage uh, of all different sizes and shapes and colors. And he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to uh, and got another load from his car and piling all these on top of the first load. <laughs> this is true. He told me and the therapist that he had to go around collecting baggage from various friends and family because he said, I didn't have enough of my own. (laughs) Isn't that what we do? (laughs) So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he of course took all of his baggage in with him, piled it between him and the therapist on the floor. And at some point... During this first session, the therapist, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open up all the baggage that he had brought in with him. Well, he did this, and he found that there was nothing inside any of it. Very wise therapist. Not every client, not every patient you can do this with. But this man was quite obviously ready for such a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this really simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often, there's a feeling of great relief. Like putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature. And simply just set it down. There's a, an old teaching story about this that I, that I like a lot, that I'd like to share with you. It's a story of a woman who uh, had practiced for uh, many years. And um, she'd had some very powerful and expansive and uh, some, even some illuminating experiences. But she felt that she still hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years, and um, uh, she, she really, really wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she had heard uh, was able to turn the mind, turn the heart to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed, 
the woman stopped and she called out to him. And he stopped and he turned around. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived at the top of the mountain. And uh, explained that she was on her way up to see this person because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted really to know the ultimate wisdom so that she could really be completely awakened and fully free in this very lifetime. She explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and all of her striving and all of her anguish. And she told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. Well, the old man stood still and listened to her, looked at her briefly, and then taking his time very slowly, he turned around and continued uh, walking on down the mountain, just for a few steps. And then he stopped again, And he briefly stood still. And then again he slowly turned around towards the woman. And then very slowly and very carefully he took the satchel off his back. He set it down on the ground. Turned around again. Left it there. Turned around again and walked on down the mountain toward the village. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. And we keep exploring, living life, seeing and understanding. And in fact, living life more freshly and more fully, right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is really a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things, and is the relative aspect of understanding, not self. This is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. And closing the talk with uh, two short pieces from the collection, the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts 
bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, is the greatest happiness of all. And the second piece from the Udana is a teaching uh, that uh, Buddha gave to his disciple Bahia. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that, indeed, there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia there is for you in the scene, only the scene, in the herd, only the herd, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.